So we're coming to our third week looking at the Lord's Prayer. And we're going to be looking today at the section, Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. If you've got a Bible in front of you, if you've got one of the church Bibles, I want to turn to page 918. This is where um, the Lord's Prayer is taken from in Matthew chapter 6. You might want to keep that passage open um, because we will be referring a little bit later on as well. So we've, we've read these words together this morning already, but let's read them again. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. It's Valentine's Day, isn't it, in a few days' time? Which gives me a perfect excuse to show some more Puritan Valentine's cards. Um, The Puritans did many good things, but they weren't particularly cheerful and they weren't particularly into romance. So here we go. Do you like these two? (laughs) What do we need today? What do you need today? And what do you pray for that is unnecessary? What do you need and what do you pray for today that is unnecessary? Keep that question in the back of your minds. What do you need What do you need from the Lord today? Give us this day our daily bread. So today we're we're coming to look at these uh, these words about about daily bread and then moving on to look at forgiveness. But that looks fairly straightforward, doesn't it? Give us today our daily bread. Give us today the things that we need. But actually, it's a little bit more complicated than that. It's a little bit more complicated. We'll come to that in a minute. As we've gone through the Lord's Prayer, we've started off declaring the holy name of God, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Holy is your name. Your name is worthy of worship. Prayer starts when our hearts are in worship, doesn't it? It starts acknowledging who God is. We don't come to some vague knowledge of God. We come to God who is knowable through Jesus Christ. And then we prayed, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We don't come with agenda, we come with prayer in surrender. And now we come to this thing, and it can look a bit mundane, can't it? it? Daily bread. We've been praying for the coming kingdom, and now we're praying for bread. It's the first part, if you like, of this middle section of the prayer where we're actually asking for specific things. But just think about this for a moment. How awe-inspiring it is that God asks us to pray for him for the things that we need. That the God who is all holy, the creator, cares for me and for you. Now, I don't know what you're going through today. I don't know whether you come into church and the weather is making you feel horrendous or whether you've had an awful week or whatever it is. And you're just thinking, oh, dear me. What an encouragement to know that God hears the cries of our hearts and that God cares about us. But there's a bit of something slightly tricky with this um, actual sentence. And it's actually to do with the original language. I won't bore you with Greek verbs or anything. But the word today that we find in this passage is only ever used in Matthew. isn't used anywhere else in ancient Greek literature. And nobody really knows what it means. 
And by the time you get into the second century, people had no idea what it meant and kept on speculating. So it could either mean, give us today our daily bread, or give us today the bread for tomorrow. Just hold that in your mind as we go through it, because it makes a bit of a difference later on. As the church um, continued through the centuries, when you get to the third and fourth century, people talking about the Lord's Prayer started to say, this is not about bread. How on earth could Jesus want us to pray for our daily needs? No, this is spiritual stuff. We're praying for communion here. Or we're praying for Jesus as the bread of life. And so you get all kinds of people speculating about what this could mean. You go a bit further down into church history, you get to the Reformation. Martin, Luther, John Calvin say, that lot got it all wrong. This is about physical bread. It's about praying for our daily needs. I'm going to agree with them today. So if you don't like what I'm saying, you can take it up with Martin Luther or John Calvin or somebody. But that's what I think this is about. This is about daily needs. It's about bringing the ordinary before God. You know, many world religions would teach people that actually, in order to be enlightened, you have to put, if you like, all that stuff of daily needs behind you. And you don't give in to the desires of the body. You just become sort of above it all and float on some transcendental cloud hovering above everything. Jesus says you bring it all to your heavenly Father. And he knows what you need. He knows what you need in life. But we mustn't be too literal with this verse either. This is not prayer for a bakery. This is not God lead me to Greg's. This is something slightly more profound. Daily bread. You know, we might use that term even today to mean all those things in life that we actually need. Not things that we want, but things that we need. So if we talk about daily bread, just shout out what kind of things do we think are covered by daily bread. Go on, shout some things out. Energy. Energy, yeah. Shelter. Shelter. Would you like to live outside in this weather without a roof over your head? What a blessing that we're in a warm room when we hear this weather beating around us. Other things. What other things do we need? Clean water. Clean water. Food, clothes, other people, yeah, sleep, yeah, air, clean air, all these basic things that's a human being we need to pray for. The Son of God, the only way to the Father, longs to hear these basic prayers from his children. Bart Simpson is not normally the person we turn to for advice on prayer. And I take this on good authority. I'm not a Simpsons fan. But this is a prayer that apparently he prays when being asked to pray grace. Dear God, we pay for all this stuff ourselves, so thanks for nothing. Now, I'm hoping none of us pray that kind of prayer. But actually, you know, sometimes, even though we may not vocalize it, we actually live those kind of lives. We live the kind of lives that think we're self-sufficient that I can provide for myself, thank you very much. I don't need to pray the daily bread prayer because I've got a good amount of money, I have a good income, I have a nice house, it's all done and dusted. Can I suggest to you today that that is an illusion? That is a total fabrication and an illusion. The very next breath that we breathe is only given to us by divine appointment. The very meal that we will have at lunchtime is given to us by God's gracious hand. The rain that is battering down as we speak is God's provision so that the land will bring forth fruit and crops and things for us to eat. Psalm 104, 27 to 28 says this, All creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. 
When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. But Jesus wasn't speaking to our world of plenty. He wasn't speaking to the Western world where we can go to Lidl or Sainsbury's and buy whatever food from around the world we want. He was speaking to the first century world. And if you lived in a city in the first century, supposing you lived in Jerusalem or Rome or Carthage or one of the big cities across the Roman Empire, one historian reckons for 70% of people who lived in a city, life was practically hand-to-mouth. If you woke up in the morning and you were a man, and it would be the men who, who did the work for the most part, you'd get up, you'd go down to the marketplace or down to the docks, and you'd seek work for the day. Zero hours contract was, was the norm. If you got a job, you got a denarii at the end of the day. That would just about pay for the next day's bread. And that's why it's interesting what that daily bread means. Jesus might be saying, come and pray for what's happening tomorrow. If you're a worker, it's okay to pray for tomorrow. That was the reality that many people in Jesus' day faced. And actually, Jesus tells parables that give that indication about how people worked. There was no service industries. There was no call centers. There were no jobs that the majority of people had. It was just this hand-to-mouth kind of way of living. And so the prayer for daily bread was a prayer of necessity. You had to depend on God. You had to trust God if you were going to follow him. You had to believe that actually God would help you to get the work to get the bread. But you notice it's not a prayer for a five-year plan. This is not a prayer saying, Dear Lord, let me have ten years mapped out in front of me that I know what you will call me to do. It's just a very simple prayer of trust for God. Eleven years ago, Claire and I um, took the plunge for me to go and train to be a minister. And there was a massive financial implication of doing that. And our Household income dropped overnight by 60%. And I was working for a church beforehand, so I wasn't like a stockbroker or something like that, where a 60% hit wasn't actually that bad. It was a massive hit on our family's finances. And I remember we sat there thinking, I don't know how this is going to work. You know, we, we cannot make the sums really add up. We had a mortgage to pay, we had a car, we had, still had two kids. Um, Nathaniel had just been born at that point. And I remember sitting there thinking, how is this going to work out? And yet we prayed. We prayed this kind of prayer. And over those three years, we never ran out of money. I don't know to this day how we managed to do that. Now, I don't believe God fiddles figures. God is not in the business of doing that. But what we found was like a bill that we'd expected to be so much would come in under. When we were needed to buy something, somebody would have bought it for us. When um, we needed a car repair, actually we then found it didn't need doing. Or it was things like that. We had a car over that period, that it needed one windscreen wiper over three years. That was the only thing we had to do on the car. We've never had one like that since. I wish we could. <laughs> a tax relief bill, you know, a rebate would come in. And you sort of think, isn't God amazing? I'm sure if I went round the room today, many of us could tell stories of God's provision when we've been forced, if you like, to pray this prayer and believe that God is a God who is interested and provides for us. Because praying this prayer is ultimately a life of faith, isn't it? It's saying, I take away the illusion that I am self-sufficient and I trust God for my very next breath and for the stuff that I need to live. But you notice it's also an us prayer. This is not, give me today my daily bread. This is not a promise either. It's not something we go and claim. It's something we pray for day by day. It's a prayer that we can pray for ourselves, but it's a prayer for our families, for our communities, for our towns, for our villages, for our nation, even for our whole planet. 
It's a prayer that we should not limit. But it's a prayer that comes with responsibility. You know, so often when we pray, and I've said this before, God calls us to give our prayers legs. To actually become part of the answer to the very prayer that we're praying. You know, the sad reality is today that many people will go hungry in our world simply because we forget this is an us prayer. And we don't take it seriously that we can be part of the answer to that problem. When there are Christian brothers and sisters starving, well, we're sat on plenty. It's an us prayer. We have to be part of the solution. There's another danger here, isn't there? Is that we can easily stop praying for needs and start praying for wants. And start praying for things that actually we think would be nice to have, but actually they they go beyond that basic sort of dependence on God. Today is a church gift day. Chris was telling us about that a few moments ago. And if you're here last week, Chris was also saying that this is the last gift day. We're not going to do any more about the building. There comes a point where we've done what we need to do and we, we need to move on and we need to seek God's vision for the future. But you know, as a church, it's very easy, isn't it, to keep saying, oh, we could do this, we could do that, we could do the other. And you go from the things that we need to do to just things that you might want to do. But as a church, we hold each other accountable there. We have a church meetings, we, you can read over the accounts, you can see where money's gone. The charity commission is always peering over our shoulder. But you know, nobody's peering over the shoulder of my bank account. How do I hold myself accountable in this area? How do I hold myself accountable that I'm not doing the kinds of things that actually make me feel like I'm self-sufficient? You know, as humans, we have a habit of gathering I don't know if you notice that. We gather stuff to us. We, we sort of, we go around and we, we gather possessions and things and stuff. And our homes can get very cluttered. Anyone live in a cluttered home? Want to admit it? Yeah. Jesus tells a parable about gathering. It's about a man who has a, a reasonable sized storehouse and it's full with grain and decides he needs a bigger one. And the aim is that if he can have all this stuff, it'll mean that he can then sit back and he can relax and he can enjoy life. And then it gets some rather sobering words. This is in Luke chapter 12, verse 20. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. If you come into our house, you will see that, like all of us, we gather stuff to ourselves. We gather musical instruments generally. (laughs) So so there's pianos and keyboards and drum kits and trumpets and flutes and all these other musical instruments that are in our house. And then associated things like amps and stereos and recordings of music. But we gather. I don't know what you gather to yourself, but we have a habit of human beings of doing that. But the human heart has a tendency to gather to itself, but then not give outwardly and be rich towards God. And we can become hoarders who think we're self-sufficient. It isn't for me to point the finger at anybody apart from myself and say, where am I praying for things that go beyond need? And where am I praying for actually things that are just excess? Extra gatherings. Extra things. There is somewhere there, isn't there, in each of our hearts where that can happen where we can sort of tip over. And when we, if we're not careful, we can become just like Bart Simpson. We can have set up on our own and lost our reliance on God. Perhaps for us today, there is that question that we need to look at. Are we gathering 
or are we giving? Are we giving? Do we need to stop gathering? And do we need to start giving outwards to other people in need? But, you know, this isn't just about physical need either, is it? Um, somebody mentioned that, you know, the things we need is, is emotional as well. We need people. We need one another. The New Testament we looked at earlier this year, or last year, wasn't it, where we looked at some of those one-anothering phrases. We need emotional support, spiritual support. These are things that if we're going to flourish as Christians, we need. Are you both a receiver of that and a giver of that? Are we praying that in a kind of us kind of way? But, you know, we have the daily bread needs. But we also have eternal needs as well, don't we? And this moves us into the next part of this passage. Because just as we need bread and the things of um, this life to survive, if we want to flourish, and if we want to have relationship with God, we need forgiveness. Forgiveness is right at the heart of the gospel. Forgiveness is where we accept the cross of Jesus Christ that forgives us of all our sins, that Jesus paid the price so that we can be forgiven. Without forgiveness, the Bible will tell us we cannot enter into relationship with God. We cannot know eternal life. We cannot know the joy of having peace with God. And so in this prayer, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. To pray for forgiveness. It's not a sinner's prayer in the sense that this is a prayer for conversion. But this is a prayer of somebody who already is in relationship with God, praying for ongoing forgiveness and becoming a forgiver. If you want the technical terms, this is not a justification prayer. It's a sanctification prayer. It's a prayer for growing in holiness. I think I've told you about um, this man I met once, but I'm going to tell you again. I once met a man um, in our previous church. He believed he had achieved sinless perfection. He believed he was perfect. Now, if you want something to cause chaos in a church, having somebody that believes they are perfect creates quite a lot of interesting conversations. Because whatever he did, he believed he was right. Whatever he said, he thought he was right. So I remember getting quite concerned about this because it was causing quite a lot of tension because you couldn't challenge him on anything. No, I am perfect. I have achieved this high level of holiness. And I remember talking to the regional minister and they said, well, test it. See if he really is perfect. Get a glass of water and chuck it in his face and see how he reacts. I thought, perhaps not, (laughs) but I get the point. It's really harsh, though, if you think that you're perfect, isn't it? Especially when Jesus says we're not. Especially when we realize that, actually, we all muck up. Christians of 50 years can still make, if you like, basic schoolboy errors in terms of not doing what God wants. We hear it in the media time, and again, sadly, Christian leaders whose ministries fall apart because they've fallen into some kind of sin. And so what Jesus says here is we need to be forgiven and we need to become people who forgive other people. don't know about you, but I find it relatively straightforward to come before God and ask for forgiveness because that's done in the quietness of my own heart. But when it involves somebody else, that gets much more difficult potentially. can get a lot more difficult. It's also incredibly humbling when we look at this prayer to think that other people might be forgiving us because we've hurt them. It's a prayer that works in all directions, us to God, God to other people, other people to us. 
And just a bit further down this chapter, if you're under no illusion that actually this is both we're forgiven, but we're called to forgive, just look at verses 14 and 15 of Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus reemphasizes this. For if you forgive others when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. It's quite straightforward, isn't it? What does this mean? John Calvin mentioned him already today. He says this about this passage. If we retain feelings of hatred in our hearts, if we plot revenge and ponder any occasion to cause harm, and even if we do not try to get back into our enemies' good graces by every sort of good office, deserve well of them, and commend ourselves to them, then by this prayer we entreat God not to forgive our sins. I probably have to leave that up for about half an hour to decipher the language. It's quite old language, but hopefully we get the kind of point that Calvin is making there. If we're sat here and we've got bitterness within us, or if we're plotting revenge against somebody else, we're in no place to receive forgiveness from God. We're just not in the right frame of mind. We're not in the right place. If we can't give forgiveness, we can't receive it. It has to be that process that goes all the way around. It's that cycle of becoming like Jesus. The problem is sometimes I think that when we're forgiving other people, we make forgiveness quite cheap. I don't know if you've done this. You say, I forgive them in your heart, yet actually going on a deeper level is, but just give me the chance to seek revenge and I will sock it to them. You know, and you find yourself having said you're forgiven somebody, but actually it's not resonated deeply within. Can I suggest if that's what we're doing, we've not actually forgiven in the first place. We've said it, but it's not actually happening. Our forgiveness was bought at the ultimate price by the Lord Jesus. He gave of his very self on the cross of Calvary so that we can be forgiven. Don't expect forgiveness in our life to be something that is cheap, something that is necessarily easy, something that isn't costly to us. Forgiveness is something that we model from what Jesus has done. But you know, forgiveness isn't forgetting. It's not turning a blind eye to problems. It's not, uh, it doesn't mean we don't address problems. But it's actually saying, I put down any kind of feeling of right to, to plot revenge, to have hatred towards somebody, and I replace it with the desire for that person to be all they can be in God. To be all they can be. How do we do that? I always find forgiveness is, is a great subject to talk on. But it's a very difficult one to put into practice in our own lives. We need God's wisdom and guidance. You know, it's often not just a flick of a switch where we say in our hearts, I forgive them and walk away and it's all done and dusted. The Christian um, writer and speaker, R.T. Kendall, tells a story about this. And he tells the story of how he'd written a book. Um, and a lot of his books are really good. But this particular book, there was a theologian friend of his who didn't recommend it. And apparently R.T. Kendall was really upset by this, really hurt by it. And he said he noticed that he started to build up bitterness within himself towards this person. Never said anything to this person. But it built up and it built up and it built up until he was feeling quite angry towards this particular individual. And he said actually he got to the point where he realized he needed to forgive that person for what they'd done. But he also realized that it was far more complex than that because mixed in with it, was a load of pride on his part and all kinds of other issues that were going on. So he said, actually, what he did was he went into the quiet place, 
repented of what he had done in terms of pride, and then forgave if there was any slight on the other person. What he didn't do, and this is really interesting, he didn't ever tell the person that he'd forgiven them. Because he said, if you want to make a situation that didn't really exist into a really bad situation, go up to somebody and tell them you've forgiven them for a sin they didn't even know they'd done. You know, sometimes we need great wisdom to know how to forgive somebody. And sometimes that is enough, isn't it? Just to say, actually, I forgive that person in my heart. I want the best for them, and I will do to them what God has graciously done for me. But other times, that is not going to be enough. You know, other times, relationships may have been severed. Other times, there may be really difficult problems when actually we need to bring it out into the light of day. And we need to have those difficult conversations. We may need to bring in a Christian friend in there or a church leader or we may need counseling support to move that one forward. Because forgiveness is ultimately an act of the will, isn't it? It starts with being obedient to the call of Jesus. Jesus says that it's always the call. The call is always to forgive. There are no exceptions to that call. I'm not saying that is easy. I'm not saying it's something we can do like a flick of a switch. It is often a long process. But we are always called to do that. Jesus Christ died with outstretched arms to pay the price for our sin. And he calls us to do the same to other people. I don't know today if there are, if you like, outstanding issues in your own heart in relation to forgiveness. I don't know whether you're sat here today, and as we talk about this, actually you're, you're, you're taken back to many years ago when something happened, and you've not let it go. And actually it's gnawing away at you, and it's creating bitterness inside of you. It might even go back to childhood. Or it might be that actually on the way here, somebody cut you up in the car, and it's annoyed you and you've got a bit of road rage, and you need to just let that go. Whatever it is, it can be from one extreme to the other. But actually, if we don't deal with that, if we don't deal with that, it becomes a problem. We don't enable ourselves then to receive the forgiveness that God calls us to have. I don't know where this passage leaves you this morning. I don't know whether you actually feel that you need to respond to the the call to be a forgiver, or whether you need to just come before God in repentance this morning and ask for forgiveness. I don't know whether actually it's it's more to do with the daily bread. Perhaps you feel like you've set yourself up on your own and you feel very self-sufficient this morning. And God is simply saying to you, don't do that. Don't live under that illusion. It's all from me. You know, come and live that life of dependency. There are two things this morning that we need. One is the daily bread. The other is forgiveness. They're both offered to us. They're both call us to pray for them. Will we do that? Will we be the kind of people who are humble before God, who pray and who seek forgiveness? Let's just spend a moment in quiet. I'll invite the music group to come up and they'll lead us in a couple of songs just in a moment. But let's just spend a moment in quiet and pray before the Lord.